Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. Dear listeners, today we begin a series that touches on knowing who God is. In them, we refer to one of the great confessions of the Church, known as the Belgic Confession. If you want to know more about this great confession, you can go to our website at voiceofthechurch.org and you will find a link there. In his preface to his commentary on the Belgic Confession, The Church's Witness to the World, Dr. P. Y. de Young says that too many people are satisfied with the form of faith without its substance. That was true, he says, in the days when the Lord Jesus lived on the earth, and it is still true today. He then quotes from Dorothy Sayers, who wrote about the spiritual condition in Great Britain in the 50s. Says Sayers, It is fatal to imagine that everybody knows quite well what Christianity is, and needs only a little encouragement to practice it. The brutal fact is, in this Christian country, no one person in a hundred has the faintest notion what the Christian Church teaches about God, or man, or society, or the person of Jesus Christ. That was England in the 1950s. Surely, you say, this is not true of us. Surely we know something of what it is that the Church teaches about God, man, society, and the person of Jesus Christ. Well, no doubt we do. We do know something. But the question remains real and urgent. How well do we know what the Church confesses? And are the confessions of the Church important to you? As you might know, the churches from the Reformation subscribed not only to the three ecumenical creeds, which are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, but they also subscribed to many confessions, and one of these confessions is the Belgic Confession. It is a part of what we Reformers call the three forms of unity. They are the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. Today I would like to share with you the first article of the Belgic Confession, That article focuses on God, the only God. Do we really know who God is? As Christians, we pray to him, we read his word, we talk about him, we know him as the creator of the world, and he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a God of love and compassion, a God of faithfulness and justice, the God who is righteous in all his ways. We know that the Bible says all of those things about the Lord God. Nevertheless, it is good that we ask ourselves, how well do we really know who God is? Is it possible that people, that we, have erroneous ideas about God? If so, how can you tell? How do we know? Article 1 of the Belgian Confession begins by saying, We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. We all believe, it says. Here the Church speaks. Here you and I speak as believers. It is the living members of the Church of Jesus Christ who make confession here. We believe with the heart, or you could say, we believe in our hearts. That means that we have committed ourselves to this. It means that we are prepared to stake our life on this. Oh, it's true. We don't always hear the word believe. As a matter of fact, we sometimes use the word believe to communicate uncertainty. For example, when we say, I believe so, we often mean to communicate I'm not all that sure about this, but I think, I believe, that this is such and so. But the person who believes, as Article 1 uses the term, means to say, this is sure and certain. 
And because we are sure and certain, because we, with conviction and confidence, believe with the heart, that's why we also confess with the mouth. After all, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? In other words, what you believe with your heart is like a fountain, and that you confess with your mouth is like the stream that flows from the fountain. And when you think about that for just a moment, you recognize that the stream can only be as good as the fountain is. So the all-important question here is, what lives in your heart? What do you know for sure about God? Do you believe what the Word of God teaches and how it is summarized in this confession of the Church? Do you say with the Church what she says in her creeds? Are you prepared to stake your life on that? Now that is an important question, isn't it? Because the fact is, you must and you do, confess with your mouth. All people do. You know that. Usually, you don't have to talk to people for a long time to get a first impression of how it is they think about God. And you know that there is tremendous difference between the language of the child of this world and the language of the child of God, right? The child of God wants to echo the language of Scripture. He has heard the Scripture say that it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. Oh yes, every day you could meet people who say to you, it is foolish to still believe in the existence of God. Can you prove his existence? It is true, people have tried that, and they have come up with all kinds of arguments for the existence of God. But the fact is, you cannot, and you may not, try to prove God's existence. You see, you cannot prove the existence of God because there is always the skeptic who will undercut the arguments who will say that what you call God, he chooses to call evolution, or the power of nature, or the world soul. And you may not try to prove the existence of God, because the Bible never does anything like that. The Bible simply begins by affirming that God is. In the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created. The Bible asks that we believe, it asks that we confess the God who reveals himself on its pages by its words, The Bible never asks us to argue the existence of God. It asks us only to confess the God who has spoken and who so speaks to us today by his holy and divine word. With Article 1, we confess that the Bible reveals to us that there is only one, a single, simple, and spiritual being whom we call God. In addition to speaking about God as a being, something the Bible itself never does in so many words, lest anyone think that God is a being like unto other beings, which he is not at all. In addition to speaking about God as a being, this article confesses three things. One, God the only, that is, that he is single, a single being. Two, he is a simple being, and three, he is a spiritual being. To help us understand each of those points, I would like to refer you to and look at with you a number of Bible passages. We will look first at all the passages which say that God is only one, a single being. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jesus, in Mark 12, verse 29, says to the scribes that the word of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, are the most important and the first commandment. In Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11, you read, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Then in verse 6 of the next chapter you read, Thus says the Lord, I am the first, and I am the last. 
Besides me, there is no God. You see, that God is only one. A single being means, therefore, that there is no other God besides him. That point is made in another way also in the Bible. There is talk about idols. Idols are nothing. They are vanity, says the Lord in Psalm 115, for example. Our God, we confess, is also a simple being. The early Christian fathers used this language to underscore the fact that God is not a composite. You see, we may not picture God as though he were a collage. A collage, as you may know, is a painting wherein the painter has brought a number of pictures together. He has skillfully created one picture from many pictures. All too often, that is precisely how people think of God. Then they think of all God's attributes, of his goodness and mercy and love and justice. They think of his power and majesty, of his wisdom and knowledge and holiness. And yes, they think that if they put all these attributes together, that then they have God. In their thinking, God is the sum total of all his divine attributes. And then they go further. Then they begin to ask themselves, of all those attributes of God, which one is the most important? Is it wisdom? Or is it his goodness? Is it his justice? Or is it his love? As you know, for a long time already, I think possibly ever since the Second World War, people have emphasized that God is love. Oh, and there is no doubt about it. The Bible certainly says that God is love. For example, in the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 8, John writes, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That is clear language, right? God is love. But when you then turn to the first chapter of that same letter, you hear John say in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in the last chapter of that letter, John says, He is the true God and eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 20. You hear it. God is love. God is light. God is true God. God is eternal life. And so, too, the Bible tells us God is righteous. God is holy. God is omniscient. And he is omnipotent. He is each of those things totally with all his being. But when this is forgotten... When, for example, God's love is elevated above all his other attributes, then people think of God's love in very human terms. And then they play God's love off against his justice by concluding, if God is really a God of love, they reason, then why would he allow such terrible things to happen to people? So they want to adjust the story. The reason they think so lies in the fact that they have distorted the view of God's love. God, you see, is not only love— he is also righteous and holy, and he is good, and he is just. And see, where that is forgotten, where, for example, God's holiness is sort of pushed into the background of our awareness in order to make room for his love, there the understanding of God's love becomes distorted. But God is a simple being. That means, you see, that we must not, that we may not try to add all of his attributes together in order to get a composite picture of God. Rather, we must confess that God is altogether love, as he is altogether holy and altogether righteous and altogether merciful and good and pure and powerful and wise. We hope that you enjoyed this meditation of this series of five for the month of March. 
Next week, we will finish the first article of the Belgian Confession as we look into what it says about God as a spiritual being. Thank you for listening.